This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 26, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. How should once great cities recreate themselves? How does a city that aspires to be cool actually earn that reputation? How should local and state officials remove themselves to allow urban centers to thrive? Greg Brooks is president of the newly founded Better Cities Project. We discussed why city leaders ought to be more proud of good infrastructure and work to avoid the expensive, shiny new objects downtown. For the most part, state-based think tanks, um, they focus on issues in the capital. That's right. And they focus on what is this issue, how will this help the average person in every part of the state. That's right. But and there, but in every state, there are a one or two or a few cities that are the economic engines of the state. They are quite often uh, the, the cultural engines of the state. And uh, to the extent you want to go visit the city and take in all of the amenities that uh, co- go along with being in a city – That's the place you go to, and it should be a welcoming, inviting place for everyone in a state or an area to come to. Right. So why are so many large cities in America hollowing out? Well, I think it's a case of good intentions gone awry. Uh, For example, you have to draw a distinction between – Economic prosperity, which is what I would say America has been seeing in the suburbs for 50 years or more and and increasingly in the exurbs as well versus economic development, which is what cities increasingly rely on when they look at that success and they say, how can we engineer that? The process of cities hollowing out has been organic and largely driven by individuals pursuing – and individuals and organizations pursuing their own enlightened self-interest. The process of trying to fix it has at its worst been an exercise in central planning that would made the Politburo proud and has had similarly poor results. So uh, Portland likes the fact that it is a weird city. Austin likes the fact that it's a weird city. And then, of course, uh, ironically, uh, dozens of other cities have <laughs> mimicked the slogan, keep, insert city here, weird. Right. And I've always thought that around the time you've had a focus group, which doubtless had a diversity expert weighing in and a consultant all to come up with keep my town name weird, guess what? You're not weird anymore. You're, you're the conformist goth kid who looks just like all the other goth kids, right? Austin and Portland and other unique locations are not unique because they were planned into existence. What happened was a bunch of people who shared similar values and similar vision got together and created something amazing that drew other people. And that's an ongoing process. What you know, what made Austin weird originally is not necessarily what makes it weird and wonderful today. For cities that want to uh, be cool, for lack of a better term, and want to have a lot of the amenities that these kinds of so-called weird cities have, if you can't engineer it, and you know you're a local official, perhaps every you're a hammer. Everything, every problem looks like a nail. What do you do? Well, I think I think there's some truth to that. I think the truth is that what makes a city great is a happy and productive 
populace. And that takes a lot of forms, right? It takes the form of good infrastructure that allows people to get to and from where they want to go. It takes the form of reasonable levels of taxation and regulation that don't stifle uh, the the more fragile and uh, green shoots parts of the economy. Uh, it takes a willingness to take one's hand off the tiller a little bit and say, rather than say, we are going to be home to Boeing's headquarters in the next 20 years and we are setting our sights for that, or we are going to debase ourselves before uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon and try and see just how much we can give them to show up. Uh, rather than pursue those those big shiny things, uh, real long-term prosperity comes from creating environments where individuals can create their own small prosperities and organizations can create those small prosperities. If you look at uh, the history of Detroit, uh, you have a, a massive one-industry town That's that right. was tremendously productive for decade, decade after decade, just cranking out cars and sending them all over the United States. Uh, about the 1970s, it should have been clear that there was a problem. Right. Well, the 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 history of politicians, business owners, you know, homeowners even chasing their sunk costs with this almost gambler's fallacy belief that well, it's going to turn around any day now. That is a very long and very painful history. Uh, I would agree with you that. Uh, Sitting here in the studio today, you and I can think, well, surely Detroit saw the writing on the wall. But you have to understand that it's not just the writing on the wall. There's layer upon layer of social and political incentives on not merely the elected decision makers, but the civil servant staffs that they work with and the political capital class of donors and influencers to all uh, engage in a sort of group fantasy that uh, often carries things on until it's too late to fix a small problem. Now you're faced with a big problem. All right. Well, then let me correct my statement and say by 1990, <laughs> Detroit should have known that there was uh, a serious problem, but the the solution, as you allude to, was to essentially double down on providing benefits to that one industry. That's right. And so how do how do, you know, cities that find themselves in that kind of situation uh what on earth do they do? They've, they one they've got to co combat the incentives that exist. That's right. They've got to change attitudes about what the potential solutions are. Uh so for give me an example of, of how you think Detroit uh, from where it is as a city that was once a great city and has been on the decline for 40 years, uh, comes back. Well, I'll, uh, I'll speak an unpopular opinion here and say that the current, uh, pardon me, the current story of Detroit's resurgence, uh, may be a bit oversold. Uh, yes, there's development going on. Yes, there is a, uh, a bounce back in the automobile industry to some degree. But if you look at 
what is happening in Detroit in terms of businesses coming in and, and headquarters being built and whatnot and weigh that against the incentives and the deals that are being offered. I'm not prepared to call that economic development. It may just be property development that's ultimately benefiting a handful of developers and moving jobs around but not necessarily creating new jobs. Now, you asked a very direct question, what what does Detroit do in that situation? Uh, frankly, you know, that's – it's a triage-related question. You know, it's like asking what do you do with the person who's got a gut wound in, in an, an army field hospital. There's relatively little you can do. You're going to have to back out of this situation probably at a cost of great continued pain and I would – at the, at the risk of sounding cynical, I would say a best case scenario for Detroit is it's another 20 years before they really have a clean shot at prosperity and growth. So uh, to the extent that Detroit then could be used as some sort of cautionary tale for cities that are not you know, quite at that point but have problems, um, I'm thinking of Cleveland, for example, uh, is another city. What, what do you tell city leaders uh, in – in those kinds of places where things are are stagnant but not terrible, there may be a path out in terms of creating lots of individual prosperities, as you noted. Well, what what does the the marginal city, the median city, do in terms of getting out of the way? I think that you know, to borrow a sports metaphor, uh, you have to go against your own political instinct as a political leader and your own instinct as you look out at the media and the polls and pursue a series of base hits in lieu of home runs. It's very, very tempting to go after the big development projects. And, and in fact, there's an entire class of developer that moves. Uh, you can either say like Harold Hill and the Music Man or you can say like a locust. They move from town to town pursuing these highly leveraged, highly subsidized development deals where they're going to do just fine, but the city is left with an asset uh, on its books that may not be paying any taxes for 30 years. Uh, so you need to resist the temptation to do that and instead come back and say, okay, what's going to improve the life and prosperity of individuals and small and mid-sized businesses on a consistent basis. And that often looks like infrastructure. It often looks like uh, uh, lowering regulations and making it easier to get, uh, get into business and to go from one business to multiple businesses within a city. I know that the gig economy, it has been oversold in some quarters, but uh, – you know, it's it's one thing to look at economic reports and say, well, you know, the gig economy is not necessarily great for America. There are millions of people who are now making their their money this way. And if, uh, for example, it takes as much paperwork and public hearings to open your Airbnb in Las Vegas as it does to open a gas station in Mini Mart, then there's something broken there. And that's probably keeping revenue off the books. There are a lot of ways that cities and enabled by states, cities exist at the pleasure of states. That's right. Um, engage in this sort of 
I guess it's a shell game really with tax revenue and things like that. I can remember I used to work in Frankfort, Kentucky and I can remember a lobbyist who is a friend of mine. It is possible. Uh, he said, do you know what tax increment financing is? He said, it's if I had some ham, I could have ham and eggs if I had some eggs. <laughs> I I may ask you to write that down. That's excellent. <laughs> it seems like in some of the examples you point to in Detroit, it's not clear that they're creating new jobs, That's right. but they may also be obscuring the ability to understand where the productivity actually is coming from. That's correct. And it is different from city to city. Uh, you know, what um, I'll come back to the gig economy, what the gig economy looks like in Las Vegas. Uh, where I call home is completely different from what it's going to look like in Cleveland, right? You know, there are, there are people probably making more money than you and I combined at driving Uber and Lyft and doing God knows what else in Las Vegas. Uh, but uh, that that environment doesn't exist uh, in every locale. Uh, one of the I want to focus on on TIFs or tax increment financing for just a minute because you brought it up one. One of the really insidious things about TIFs is that they often metastasize into the communities around a major city. So what you'll see are as uh, as businesses leave an urban core and go out to the suburbs or exurbs, they're showing up at city councils asking for TIFs in situations that are not blighted, are not redevelopment. We're talking greenfield development opportunities and they still want that level of break. And uh, that puts local – these smaller cities which have less flexibility in their balance sheet in a terrible position because nobody wants to be the one to turn away the uh, the new big box complex but that big box complex may not provide a single penny of school funding for 25 or 30 years. The political impulse is undeniable and it seems much easier uh, for lawmakers, for local officials, swells for lack of a better term, to gather around a ribbon cutting at a new arena than it is to gather around a ribbon cutting for a revamped, really efficient, well-functioning sewer system. That's right. And and the funny thing is the um the sewer system uh maybe okay, maybe not the sewer system, but say a municipal water uh operation. Uh that may end up being one of your crown jewels if you treat it right. One of the reasons municipal water privatization has taken off in this country and surface transportation privatization and airport privatization did not as much is you can go into a democratically controlled city. You can point at that water and wastewater operation that is not making them any money. It's probably being operated at a loss or on a, on a zero sum basis and the infrastructure is falling apart and the developer can say, I'll upgrade it. I'll pay you a chunk of cash up front and an ongoing revenue stream to use for whatever projects you get excited about and we take over the facility. Uh, we need to find a way or multiple ways to take that dynamic and bring it into other elements of infrastructure because it's been relatively successful where it's been done and 
unlike other types of privatization, you don't run up against this reflexive uh, Republican-Democrat divide on it. If you look at vote totals from recent elections, the gap between how people in cities vote and how people in uh, rural parts of the country vote is as stark as ever uh, and perhaps getting more stark as time goes on. The idea of uh, metro wastewater privatization or water project privatization or uh, surface transportation privatization is anathema to a lot of the kinds of people, the kinds of uh, ideologies that people in cities hold. So that seems like a really hard pitch to make. So thread that needle. Well, I don't think you show up with your brass band and start with water utility privatization. That might not be your your best shot. But I do think that we've got some evidence that conservative and libertarian ideas can find an uptake in cities in a way that conservative and libertarian politicians cannot. Uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani and uh, his remarshalling of policing in New York City is a good example. Actually, New York City is a good example because on a global stage, it is actually governed on uh, a sort of center-right basis compared to other major major cities and uh, seems to be doing well with that. One of the things that I think is going to work and that we're trying to – we're committing to do is rather than rolling up with – Hi, we're the libertarians and we're here to help or hi, we've got some conservative ideas. I think that in cities, you have fundamental issues that you can get a broad swath of people to agree on. Nobody wants the pothole that breaks their rim every time they drive over it, right? Nobody wants their water rates climbing 25% a year when the water still got rust in it, things like that where you – you have an ability to build a consensus around uh, issues that might on a national scale at other times have a right-left divide. And I think the key to that is going to be less right-left, Republican, Democrat, freedom, tyranny and much more a matter of saying to people, look, in your city, there's a bunch of stuff that's broken. Meanwhile, there's a small handful of individuals who are making an absolute fortune cutting deals in City Hall that you can't cut because you don't have the right connections and you don't know the right people or you haven't make, given the right money. That's not fair and there is a better way to do things. And I think that message is going to resonate. Greg Brooks is president of the new Better Cities Project. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.